Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part three of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter eight. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. This period of counting the Omer marks the beginning of the barley harvest in ancient times when Jews would bring their first sheaves, the first fruits, as an offering to God. Barley was the first grain in the Holy Land, and barley is an inferior grain. It's used for animal fodder quite often, or a very poor man's bread. Wheat is the final and the best grain in the Holy Land, the final finale, the grand finale of the harvest season, wheat, the finest grain. And the command from the Lord, it's in, it's in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the command from the Lord was to count seven complete weeks from the start of the grain harvest, ending with the festival of Shavuot on the 50th day, Passover. And at the time of the Exodus, Moses announced that from 50 days from our escaping 50 days, we will celebrate a religious ceremony at Mount Sinai. The people were so excited and they counted counted the days. It's, it's where the counting of the Omar started. But there's some spiritual growth that happened in that 50 days, spiritual growth in waiting for the bridegroom, the promised meeting, the wedding feast. And it's during the counting of the Omar, this 50 days, that the bride is readying herself. Much like the grain harvest, the Jewish people first ripened as a nation as they left Egypt and they're blossoming into a true nation of their own but it won't be complete. Uh, Passover is never complete until they receive the Torah on day 50, the giving of the law, the actual wedding. In the temple days on the 50th day, beginning the count corresponding to the holiday of Shabbat, on the 50th day, there were two loaves offered, two loaves made of the finest possible wheat offered at the temple to signal the end of the wheat harvest. And the Talmud says that no offerings from the new crop of wheat were allowed in the temple before these two loaves were brought. The commentaries explain that these two wheat loaves were of the finest, finest wheat, and they were a thank offering at a toda, a Eucharist to the Lord. The Talmud says that by waving the two loaves, they were waved in four directions, all the ordinal directions, north, south, east, west, up and down, to acknowledge the creator, the one who created the four directions in heaven and earth, waving in the four directions, blessing the winds that originated from them so that they should only be good, beneficial winds, and lifting the loaves blessing the dew that it too should be beneficial. There's a great contrast between eating the unleavened bread and the feast of the unleavened bread at Passover time, and then the, the two loaf wave offerings that are full of yeast and leaven. On Shavuot, the giving of Torah elevates the world to the spiritual level that existed before the sin of the tree of knowledge, writes one of the rabbis. Just as the evil inclination was only a positive force to help build the world, so too on Shavuot, we are empowered to use it once again for its intended purpose. This is also expressed in the Jews' famous declaration upon receiving the Torah when they said, first we will do and then we'll understand later. They agreed to have complete obedience to God in every situation without regard for their personal feelings and desires, a complete subjugation of the evil inclination that is only possible through Torah. But guess what? 
They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Torah, the law was not enough. They couldn't keep from the evil inclination of being fallen human beings. Isaiah predicted that there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch that will grow out of his shoots. And the spirit, capital S, the spirit of the Lord shall be upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in fear of the Lord. Jesse, David's father's name is Jesse and he was the head of the Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court of Torah law. He was one of the most distinguished leaders of his generation. I didn't know this about Jesse, but in the Hebrew literature, Jesse was a man of such greatness that the Talmud observes that Jesse was one of only four righteous individuals individuals who died solely due to the instigation of the serpent. Example, only because death was decreed upon the human race when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge at the serpent's instigation, not due to any sin or flaw of Jesse's own self. He was a very, very holy man. The final judge of Israel named Samuel visited Jesse one day and he said, one of your sons, bring me all your sons. One of your sons is meant to be the next king of Israel to replace Saul. Seven boys came forward. Is this all you have? The, the sons were summoned. The, these, he looked at all of them. He prayed over all of them. He said, is there anyone else? Well, there's little David, the, the, the youngest. He's out in the field tending the sheep. Send for him. They sent for David and Samuel knew this is the one, this is the one. And Samuel anointed him by the power of the spirit that came over Samuel. And it says in 1 Samuel 16, 13, that from that day on, the spirit, capital S, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Now, David was full of the spirit. So one of the gifts he had was courage. And he goes out to fight Goliath in the name of the Lord. He cuts off his head and and defeats the Philistine giant. The Lord God sought David as a man after his own heart and commanded David to be captain over the people. So all three of these first kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, they each ruled exactly 40 years, one biblical generation. David was the greatest king of all Israel. It was a united kingdom under David, and he helped establish the eternal throne of God on earth. The Midrash shows how King David started the custom of learning Torah late into the hours of the night. He would take his harp and sing praise to God until midnight. And then at the chiming of a string from the harp above his bed, he would gain the strength of a lion and immerse himself in Torah learning until dawn. This true origin of keeping a vigil with Torah until the earlier hours of the morning became a a tradition of Shavuot. Uh, It was started by King David because he loved God's law so much to this day. The Jews will read the the Torah on 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 the eve of Shavuot. One of his Psalms, oh, how I love your law, Lord God. I meditate on it day and night. Love and knowledge of God's law were not enough for King David, not to give in to his fallen fleshly nature. He loved God's Torah. He knew God's Torah, but he had that battle of fallen human nature. He had that battle of flesh against spirit that Paul's talking about. And David lusts after Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. And though, even though he knows God's law and he loves God's law, David lets his flesh take over. He has adultery with another man's wife, according to the flesh, and he murders her husband, according to the flesh. He calls for Uriah, moves him to the front battle line after he has impregnated his wife, Bathsheba. 
But in this battle of the flesh and the spirit, then the spirit speaks to David and he's convicted and he's humbled and he has true remorse and he has repentance and he cries out to God in Psalm 51. And the Lord loves David and forgives David. The Lord has sought David because David is a man after God's own heart. Now, David is chosen as king and David chooses Jerusalem by God's decree as his capital city. And he takes the ark of God's covenant with the true presence of God inside, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. There's no temple yet, but David is so full of the Holy Spirit that he is just rejoicing with joy, unabashedly praising God before the ark, dancing and leaping for joy. It must have been some glorious praise session. David and the whole house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and canestas and cymbals. And all of a sudden, one of the men went to steady the ark because it was tipping. It hit a it hit a pothole and it was it was tipping. And Uzzah, one of David's servants, struck forward to 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 steady the ark, and God immediately struck him dead. And the procession stopped. And David was angry because the Lord had broken forth upon Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. So they stopped at the house of Obadiah the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained at the house of Obadiah the Gittite for three months while David prayed and made himself ready to advance the ark of the Lord. He realized with fear of the Lord how powerful the true presence of God was. Now, this is the same exact location you can walk to it. Obadiah, the Gittite's home, is very near the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth, where Mary, a daughter of David, goes. And Elizabeth, the elder, supernaturally impregnated woman, bows to Mary from the house of David and says, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, I love this painting because Joseph is in the background, and, and this isn't in the scripture, but many paintings have Joseph accompany the young virgin. He's had these dreams. Mary goes with haste to the hill country of Judea. That's where Obadiah was, and, and he's from the house of David, so he knows all the old David stories. Mary also is from the house of David. You see Zechariah. You see Joseph accompanying her there. Joseph would have known all the David stories. Joseph would have known had Uzzah touched the ark right at this location and was struck dead and Mary, do not touch the ark. I am here to protect this daughter of David, he himself being a son of David, all of them waiting for the Davidic kingdom, the Messiah promised to David, to the house of David, eternal throne. Six months later, there were shepherds abiding in the field. Today, in the city of David, that's Bethlehem where David was born, a savior has been born to you. Do not be afraid. It's good news. David and Mary, the daughter of David, are both head crushers of evil. David crushed the head of Goliath. Mary will crush the head of the serpent, as promised in Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium. Okay, more about these covenants. The first covenant, the Jewish Pentecost. The, the, the final covenant, the first Christian Pentecost. Both of these marriages, both are on Shavuot. Both are on Pentecost. If you look at a Google Earth map of Jerusalem, the arrow is pointing to where David's tomb is on Mount Zion. The tomb of David sits right under the upper room. It's the basement right under the cenacle, the upper room where the 12 were gathered for the Last Supper. And then where 120 were gathered for Pentecost, 12 times 10 were gathered for the first Christian Pentecost. 
There's a courtyard. You can go up or you can go down. You go up to the upper room. You go down to King David's tomb underneath. The tomb is is uh, on the ground floor, and it reads, King David, David, King of Israel, is alive and enduring. The second floor is the traditional site of the Last Supper and the first Christian Pentecost. This is the place where the Last Supper occurred, where the apostles returned after witnessing the ascension of Jesus, where Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, delivered his sermon after uh, the, the Holy Spirit descended on Pentecost. The room immediately above the tomb of David is dedicated to the descent of the Holy Spirit, and it's called the Chapel of the Holy Spirit. Now, It's in Acts 1. This is the second marriage. Jesus presents himself alive after his passion by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days. This is during the counting of the Omar because it's been Passover and we have 50 days to count. While he's staying with them, Jesus charges them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water and before many days, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This was all happening during the counting of the Omar, the 50 days when the bride is readying herself. You're going to receive power. That's dynamite, dynamis in in, in the Greek. Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the entire earth. And when he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight and he's gone. And they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. It's a Sabbath day walk. And they enter into the upper room where they're staying. Remember, it's right above David's tomb. And it's Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, Zealot, the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. All these are one accord. They're devoting themselves to prayer. They're together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now, 40 days has gone by. He ascends. He's telling them to stay there and wait. They have nine days of prayer. That is the church's very first novena. A novena is nine days of prayer. And this was a novena, nine days of prayer to await, as Jesus told them, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So nine day novena in this upper room. It's the first novena of the church. They're counting the Omar. Their bride is readying herself for the reception. She has to be receptive. She has to be blemish free. She has to be clean and ready. And on that day of Pentecost, it's day 50. They're all together in one place. So they're counting the Omar. This is day 50. This is day 50. This is day 50. They've gone from the barley harvest to the wheat harvest, the finest, finest, finest wheat harvest. The loaves are being taken to the temple. The wave offering is happening. It's day 50. The bride is readying herself. Jesus has been the final Passover lamb 49 days ago. This is during the counting of the Omar, the Passover lamb day one to the 50th day of the finest wheat, waving the wheat loaves, two loaves. You could say Old Covenant, New Covenant. You could say Jew, Gentile, waving the pure wheat loaves in every ordinal direction. They are for the entire life of the world. 50th day, the finest wheat offering is happening. And the divine speech of God settles on each individual. Every nation under the sun is represented very personal. The fire splits onto each and every person and enters into their temple and indwelling Holy Spirit for those who are receptive to receive. And 
pow, dynamis. Everything starts making sense. Everything Jesus said in the scriptures starts making sense. Remember when he taught us how to celebrate mass, that last 40 days, they must have had mass after mass after mass. This is my body. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Eat and drink and live forever. Be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 50 days, 50 days. And I would not be surprised if it was a jubilee year. And I looked and looked and searched and I couldn't find it. But if that first Christian Pentecost was also a jubilee year, it would be seven years. It would be seven times seven. It'd be 49, 50. And on the 50th year was a jubilee year. And jubilees only happen once every 50 years. And when they happen, a great shofar sounded, which reminded me of God on top of that mountain. And a jubilee year was non-negotiable year of freedom, release of every slave, release of every debt, any property, any inheritance, all returned to original family members, everything forgiven. And they're doing this right above King David's tomb. And then Peter stands up full of the Holy Spirit. And I'll just read a little bit of his speech, but it's so anointed. And he says, brethren, I say to you confidently of the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. They're standing right over it. They all know he's buried there. Before therefore a prophet and knowing what God had sworn an oath to him that he would one day with his descendants upon his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. And he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this, which you see and hear. And David did not descend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make thy enemies a stool for thy feet. They all have new life in the Spirit, and their minds are being blown. Their minds are being illuminated everything's making sense, knowledge, understanding, wisdom, fear of the Lord, piety, all the gifts are being poured out to the receptive bride. It's the final marriage of God to all humanity. It's the first Christian Pentecost and Mary is there. Mary, who is the spouse of the Holy Spirit. The cloud came over her in conception, the incarnation, and now Mary is there at Pentecost, the tongue of fire, the Holy Spirit, the cloud, the glory cloud, overshadowed Mary. She's full of grace and the fire of the Holy Spirit. She is not consumed. Her womb is still intact. It's still virginal. Mary is the mother of the church. Everyone else is a sibling. She's the divine mother, the only mother. She's Jesus' mother. She's our mother. It was declared a new feast day two years ago in the Catholic Church. The very next Monday following Pentecost will be a feast day for Mary. It's called the Feast of Mary, Mother of the Church is the title. It started in 218. Pope Francis ordered it. The Feast of Mary, Mother of the Church will take precedent over any other feast days that happen to fall on the same day. Cardinal Robert Serra was on the committee that that helped establish this feast day. And he said, the hope is that the extension of this celebration to the whole church will remind all Christ's disciples that if we want to grow and to be filled with the love of God, it is necessary to plant our lives firmly on three great realities. They are the cross, the Eucharist, and the mother of God. These are the three mysteries that God gave to the world in order to structure, fructify, and sanctify our interior life and lead us to Jesus. These three mysteries are to be contemplated in silence. Paul says in Romans 8, who is there to condemn us? For Christ Jesus who died 
and more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us. Jesus Christ is our advocate to the Father. Mary could be our advocate or intercessor with Jesus. Just as Queen Mother Bathsheba could bend the ear of her son, King Solomon, we often fly to our mother, our Queen Mother Mary, to bend the ear of King Jesus on our behalf. Our own kids sometimes will ask their mom first. Maybe if they're in trouble, they'll ask mom to speak to dad on their behalf. Soften the blow a little bit. As mother of the church, one of Mary's titles is Refuge of Sinners. I love this painting of Peter running to Mary after the three denials and Mary, the mother of mercy, with her eyes and tears of mercy, listening to him and loving him. Sinful Peter could come to the mother of mercy, the mother of the church. Our Pope Francis right now with the coronavirus raging again in Italy, several times he's called on Mary's intercession. Mary, this painting painted by St. Luke, said to be painted by St. Luke, the apostle of Mary, is called Salvation, Mary's Salvation of the Roman people. And in times of the plague or sickness, she would be paraded through the streets of Rome and prayed to as an intercessor to Jesus. Pope Francis has also in the coronavirus implored Our Lady of Divine Love recently. And he said, may joy return after this moment of trial. Mary is the mother of the church. Now, is the Christian life worth it, you guys? Is the suffering for future glory, is the Christian life worth it? Paul says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in travail together until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And for this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Pope Francis, just a couple days ago on All Souls Day, he underlined that the certainty that arrives almost at the moment of the end of life is Christian hope. This hope is a gift and we cannot have it. We must ask for it. Lord, give me hope. There are many ugly things that lead us to despair, to believe that everything will have a final defeat. And after death, there's nothing. The Pope said, that's not true. There are many ugly things that make us despair, that that there's no death. There's nothing after death. But the Pope says, return, the voice of Job returns to his mind. Pope Francis goes on to say that Paul told us that hope does not disappoint. Hope attracts us and gives meaning to life. Hope is God's gift that draws us toward eternal joy. Hope is an anchor that we have on the other side. We sustain ourselves by clinging into its rope. I know that my Redeemer lives and I will see him. And I must be, I I have to repeat this to myself in moments of joy, in moments of trial, and in moments of death. Francis says, hope is a free gift that we never deserve, but it is given, it is given, it is grace, and we must ask for it. Paul talks more about this future glory, this virtue of hope. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. And he who searches the heart of men knows 
What is the mind of the Spirit? Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So with that indwelling Spirit, and we groan to Him, we don't even know how to pray as we ought, but He knows. He knows the will of the Father. His will's always in line with the will of the Father. He knows. And so He takes our groanings and makes them efficacious in our prayer. We know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Conformed, conformed to his cruciform, conformed. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, the Lord, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Peter says, the Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. He is forbearing toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's what the Holy Spirit helps us do, convicts our heart of repentance. He doesn't want to lose a single one of us, that all would be saved. He came. He desires that all of us have this future glory and eternity. And that's why he's filled us with his own spirit of love into each and every heart that's open to receive it. What shall we say to this? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? We know the judgment seat is only for Jesus Christ by the authority of the Father. He won the judgment seat. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is seated at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for thy sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul quotes David's Psalm 44 there. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Woo! We know that because Paul told us in Romans 5, 5, that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. We have new life in the Spirit. Let's pray. For our prayer tonight, I'd like to um, recite the Pentecost sequence. We say this on Pentecost Sunday in the life of the church. Pray it with me if you'd like. Come, Holy Spirit, come. From your bright and blissful home, rays of healing light impart. Come, Father of the poor, source of gifts that will endure, light of every human heart. You of all consolers best, of the soul most kindly guest, quickening courage do bestow. In hard labor you are rest, in the heat you refresh best, and solace give in our woe. O most blessed light divine, let your radiance in us shine, and our inmost being fill. Nothing good by man is thought, nothing right by him is wrought, when he spurns your gracious will. Cleanse our souls from sinful stain, lave our dryness with your rain, heal our wounds and mend our way, bend our stubborn heart and will, melt the frozen, warm, the chill, guide the steps that go astray, 
on the faithful who in you trust with childlike piety design your sevenfold gift to send give them virtues rich increase saving grace to die in peace give them joys that never end amen alleluia that was part three of paul's letter to the romans chapter eight on seeking truth with sharon doran to learn more about seeking truth bible studies visit seekingtruth.net tune in next time for more seeking truth with sharon doran